Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the Northwest Division Capsule Podcast, is what I've called it for years. So it's combination off-season review, season preview, and this one is always one of my favorites, in no small part because of my awesome guests, David Locke of the Locked On Podcast Network Empire and Radio Voice of the Utah Jazz, and Adam Maris of DNVR and Locked On Nuggets, two of my favorite people to talk to in the whole world of basketball. And we go in a lot of different directions on this podcast, how these teams are looking, the most important transactions, players to watch, just so much great stuff. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. The division pods are varying lengths. This is on the long side, about an hour and a half. Lots of really great stuff here. I hope you enjoy it, even half as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. The yearly pause to who goes first. <laughs> we do this every year. It's actually hilarious. It's Thank you for having time, us on, Danny. It's the only time we don't interrupt each other. <laughs> so true. The place I want to start here, I mean, we'll get into the basic outline. You guys have done this so many times before, but something that I found striking as I was working through it is just how often the Northwest Division interacted with each other during this offseason. You had Tim Connolly going from one Northwestern team to another, and then you had him making the biggest trade of the offseason so far with a different Northwest team. It felt really unusual to me, though it made complete sense when you consider all of the forces at play. It's true. You also can throw in you know smaller deals, but Jeremy Grant, former Nugget, now in Portland, uh, Austin Rivers, former, and Bryn Forbes, former Nuggets, now in Minnesota. So this was, I guess you would say, a bit of an incestuous offseason for the Northwest Division. I found the Conley trading for Gobert one of the most interesting aspects that probably was only was not talked about a great deal and was probably only interesting to those of us that kind of have followed the backstory of Jokic and Gobert um, in the sense that so Gobert really caused Jokic a tremendous amount of trouble until the bubble. And then I don't have the numbers in front of me. They guarded each other for like this insane amount of possessions inside that's that series. And in the middle of that series, Jokic, who had, I think up to that point, shot something like 16% from three when guarded by um, Gobert, suddenly figured out how to hit the three and what to do. And then, quite honestly, just torched Rudy for the next two years. And it's interesting because I think if I, you know, I think I have it about right there. Like at one point I just pulled up a note. He was three of his last 23 from three against Gobert going into that series in the bubble. And the first three or four games, he didn't figure it out. And then he figured it out. And once he figured out that, then everything is rolled. And there's nobody that gave Gobert more trouble than Jokic over the last two years. And I mean, the numbers are astronomical of what of Nikola did Nikola did to Rudy. Yet Conley still trades for him. I think that's actually a testament to both of them, right? It's a testament to how great the MVP is in that he's torching this guy that Conley really realizes probably gave him the hardest time of anyone, and he also realizes how great Rudy is, despite the fact that what he was watching every single night for the last two years was him getting torched. I thought it was super interesting kind of that the, the, that's the trade that was made and who it was made by immediately after he left the Nuggets. There's so much interesting stuff right in what you just said there. There's like three or four different talking points. Um, the first one, 
you know, Jokic figures guys out. I think this is one of the more enjoyable things about watching him. It's just the more he plays against a guy, the more he seems to – he just gets better over time the more he goes up against different players. And obviously, Rudy is a guy he's gone up against the most of anyone in the NBA. But I think there's another layer to this, which is in the times that Jokic struggled against Gobert, you know, yes, early on in the bubble, I think there were some other things going on with that matchup early on, the integration of Michael Porter not having Gary – some of some of those other things that, that changed as the series went on and Denver made some adjustments. But Jokic especially struggled against Gobert when Derek Favors was there. And one of the things that Utah would do is put Derek Favors on Jokic and use Gobert as the secondary help guy. And you had Paul Millsap in those days who could space the floor but wasn't a guy that you really panicked about. And I wonder how much Conley sort of took note of that. And it wasn't just Utah, by the way. There were other teams that would, you know, in in the bubble also you had Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard gave Jokic trouble. Two bigs. You put the big guy, Dwight Howard, on Jokic Jokic, and then you use the rim-protecting mobile guy as the help, and that gave him a hard time. So I wonder if that's part of the plan here is say, hey, I know that Carl Anthony Towns isn't a great defender, but let's put the big body on Jokic, and let's use Rudy, Rudy as the roamer, and let's see if that one works specifically for that matchup. That would be the thing that, to me, that would that makes me think that'll be a good matchup for Denver, is Gobert as not guarding Jokic, but as the help guy, um, which has had success in the past. And on one of the other points that David made, I noticed Jokic figuring out the Warriors in that series. I mean, games one, two, and three had some trouble, and there was additional context as there was in that bubble series. But then... Was it four, five, four, five, and six? I can't. I at this point, I can't even remember how long that series went. Yo- three, four, and five. Three, four, and yeah. five. Jokic just destroyed that. Like he offensively, he was impactful. Also made some real strides defensively too. And I mean, that's a part of why Jokic is such an unbelievably special player. Is that even against the best of the best, he figures things out and he he maximizes. It's definitely one of the traits for him. I, and, and I know maybe some people are listening to this are, are thinking, okay, maybe it's overstated this or that. Just pay attention because it's it's one of those things. I remember, you know, DeAndre Ayton was a guy that guarded him really well two seasons ago when the Suns swept the Nuggets. Last year, that was a matchup in paying extra attention to like, okay, let's see how that goes this time around. Again, different context, little p- things here or there change. But it was one of those ones where I, I felt like Jokic, it was like, oh, okay, he's got a couple new things. Oh, that's how he's going to attack him. Got it. And then just completely dominated him, at least in their head-to-head matchups last year. So I just think it's a thing with him that the more you go up against him. And by the way, Denver, their first year in the playoffs, seven-game series, seven-game series. Next year in the playoffs, seven-game series, seven-game series, and then a five-game series. This is kind of a thing. Denver falls behind in series. They figure a team out, and then they roll through the stretch. How much of that is just randomness? I don't know. But it sure fits the profile of a team and a player who just learns things as things go on, adjusts and then become somewhat unstoppable. I mean, he has every skill, so it's only a question of whether he can figure out which skills to use on that night, right? Right. And what was unique to the Gobert matchup was that one of the skills was his outside shooting, and he didn't have it. And so when he didn't have that, it allowed Rudy to take away some of his other skills in that time period. When you're you're bringing a second big over, like you're talking about, you're able to sometimes bring away some other skills. But over time, Jokic uses them all by the time he's done. And he's gotten better, frankly. That's what is so great about both he and Giannis and some of these other guys. They just continue. You know, I, I go back to interviewing Kevin McHale once, and I remember, I don't, you know, somebody asked, McHale was a little surly that day. And some young reporter asked, like, well, how about so-and-so's improvement? And Mikhail just, like, peered down at the reporter. was like, if you don't improve, you go home. (laughs) 
And to some extent, I think that's all the players in this league. And when they, you know, if, when they don't improve and they stagnate, it's really obvious. And for the great right. ones, they just do keep getting better. They evolve and they keep getting better. Yeah, it, Jokic's three-point shot, by the way, it, it's the one area. I mean, some of the, when you talk about improvement of MVP caliber players, usually it's it's intangible. Like, become a better leader and more, you know, disciplined in the clutch or whatever it is. The one tangible skill for Jokic is his three-point shot. He's pretty inconsistent, and it's more of the, like, to keep him honest part of his game. And I think it always should be. But he's been a 33 34% career three-point shooter. And if he improves that aspect of his game, if he's a 38 39% three-point shooter who's a little bit quicker triggered and more comfortable taking it, I actually think it would have a meaningful impact on his effectiveness which is crazy to say for a two-time MVP, but if he's a 38-39-40% three-point shooter, I honestly think he becomes an unguardable offensive system, like unguardable for the whole team. I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I had this little nugget that I found last year and I think is so fascinating. And I don't have the exact numbers on it, but Jokic's three-point shooting generally when fans are in the crowd versus fans not being in the crowd is pretty incredible. Really? So his first half of... T- 2021 or 2021 right is if i have it right is i think if i have my splits right is i think he shoots um 41 from three in the first half of that season and his first half of of last year of 21 22 he shoots 37 percent from three and i think only shot 21 percent from three post all-star break this last year um so and then he shot from really well from three in the bubble so there's it's kind of an interesting little wow. tidbit there on him that he played. He he was better when there were less. He's been better when there's been less people in the building. The, the only thing I would think that is sort of runs counter to that is his three point shooting. His first playoffs was really good. My my theory on it, and it could be that it could be that he's just not a good three point shooter, and everybody became a little bit better. You know, without without a crowd, I think there's something to that. But he's also a guy that I think the three point shot is the most indicative of of his focus level, and he's been a good three-point shooter in the playoffs for whatever reason he also might have worn out last year right he had to carry that whole load but sure anyway just the exact numbers on it i pulled it up 43 percent in the bubble and then the first half of 2021 is the year in which we generally it's hard to tell which games had fans and which games don't but they generally didn't he shot 42 percent from three so the two stretches where he didn't have now last year it's a i think it's a fatigue issue not a fans in the crowd issue mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's fair all right, I'm uh, done with interesting little tidbits. I got no, yep. I got no more. That, that, that that's totally. I, that I had that one and the Gobert matchup numbers from like in my notes, and now I'm now I'm useless. So you, I, you I now I now step back and listen. You are never useless, Mr. Locke. But we'll start with Adam on this question. It's it's a basic one, but I think it's important with this group, which is of the Northwest Division teams. Who do you think got better, and who do you think got worse? I think when I was going through this, I think there's only one team that got worse. That's obviously the Utah Jazz with with Rudy Gobert being gone. I think that the Thunder got a little bit better by virtue of they're probably going to play Shea Gilgis Alexander more minutes, and he's really good. We're gonna, I think I'm going to talk a lot about him today. And then all of their players just get one year older. Like I don't, they're not meaningfully better, as in they're now a good team. But I think they were better than what they looked like last year. They were they were sneaky adequate last year, but they just kept trying to lose. And so I, by virtue of that, I think they'll be better this year. And then you look Blazers, of course, better getting Damian Lillard back, having Jeremy Grant and Josh Hart, Gary Payton. Those, those are huge. Rudy, uh, Rudy Gobert to the Wolves, in my opinion, no question makes them better. Whether it works in the playoffs or whatever to be determined, but they get a major upgrade uh, in, in an all-star player, so they're better. And then the Nuggets getting Jamal Murray, Michael Porter back in the 
in addition to adding who I think are very good fits in Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Bruce Brown clearly got better. So to me, three teams got a lot better. One team in the Thunder got better by virtue of just getting older, and the Jazz got worse. I'm still buckled on Portland. Like, they got better in the sense that guys are healthy. Yeah. But they did lose C.J. McCollum in this process. I'm not totally sold on Anthony Simons. I wasn't stunned when there was a – I didn't think it was the greatest stat note I've ever seen, but I think somebody on Twitter posted the other day uh, it was a box score-based defensive stat, which means it's probably flawed. But, like, Simons came out as, like, the second-worst defensive player in all the NBA. And oh, he's real that, bad uh, defensively. That's, that's accurate. I think that one – Yeah, right. <laughs> My eye check on that was that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, it's hard to criticize Chauncey Billups for last season, but I didn't get a vibe that that had a direction of where it was going. Um, so I'm a little reluctant on the Portland got better and maybe not just not clear on who they are, what they are, where, where guys are in their career. Like, I think Jeremy Grant's a super interesting conversation to have with Adam because Jeremy Grant went to a bad team and scored a lot. And the Jeremy Grant that I thought was really good was the Denver Jeremy Grant. And I don't know what Portland gets because I don't think Jeremy Grant wants to be the Denver Jeremy Grant. And I'm not sure I actually thought that the Detroit Jeremy Grant, while he scored a lot, necessarily means he was a better player. I love, I mean, no question on all this. First of all, Portland won 27 games last year. And and it's hard with Portland in particular because when we're talking about did they get better, we're kind of talking about did their like ceiling get better. And last year they obviously kind of hit their floor, not their ceiling. But I'm just going off of what they won 27 games i think they're going to be better than that by by a meaningful amount um but the what's, what's here, just for interest what's meaningful i guess that's probably what i'm asking because you're 100 percent right on the fact hey they won 27 games they're winning more than that i i think that they're a playing team so that that to me means that they're in the equation for the playoffs all season long uh, whether whether or not they're that means they're the 10 seed. I mean, nowadays that's a low bar, but I just think that they're a team that is competitive the entire way through. And by the way, another thing that'll be interesting about the season is, you know, the Victor W is, is a really big prospect that I think some teams are going to turn the gas off early in the season. And I don't expect Portland to be one of those teams. So they might actually leapfrog a Sacramento or something like that. Um, somebody else that does turn that faucet off. So I don't know, 35 wins, 30, 30, 30, 30 34 wins, something like that to me is meaningful. I mean, their um, bet online, their bet online over under is 41. So that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. I'm just not sure I'm, I mean, I wouldn't, I, yeah, I'm not, so I don't know that he, I'm buying that number either. He, here's something that I find fascinating about the Blazers. They have had a bottom 10 defense in four of the last six seasons. And the two times they didn't, were 17, 18, and 18, 19 when they were a very good team. One of those two years, I believe they made the conference finals, and the other year they were very relevant and got knocked out a little earlier than that. And they have some capable defensive personnel now. I mean, hopefully we get more of Nurkic, but also, you know, Josh Hart and Grant and Gary Payton II, who will presumably come off the bench, but I think he'll play meaningful minutes and can do some point-of-attack defense, which they've really missed in a lot of these lineups. But do they're, they're not going to be super versatile. Maybe they'll try some stuff with a small guy at the five. I love Nasir Little. Maybe they'll do some with Nasir Little and Grant at the four and the five. But the uh, that to me, that is it has always been the barometer for these Blazers teams. And they've had some successful ones. Like, they went 42 and 30 two years ago with a with the league's second worst defense but it takes a lot we we know that it takes a lot to do that like in in the modern nba and a previous nba and my inclination on pure talent is they're not in the top half and whether they fall from 15 to 20 or from 21 to 30 will make a huge difference 
No, no question about it. And it's funny because I think this is now the third year in a row I'll make this point when we talk about Northwest Division teams that perimeter defense is the most underrated aspect of defense in the NBA. And when you talk about that stat, them being terrible, Damian Lillard is one of the worst perimeter defenders in the NBA. Anthony Simons, you know, one of the worst defenders. So that is a starting backcourt automatically. I look at that and I go, I don't care that you put Hart, Grant, and Nurkic around him. Three guys that, you know, are above average, you know, defenders or should be above average defenders. I don't care. If you can get around those guys and start making the defense rotate and do everything else, it almost renders everyone else useless. Like, okay, it doesn't matter that Nurkic can block shots and is a big body. So to me, I'm with you on that. But when I analyze Portland, and I think this is, we're going to get into this with Denver in a more interesting way, actually, later on. But I actually think that the Anthony Simon signing and the money they gave him was so weird because to me, he's not part of their best closing lineup. And I think that they'll have to arrive at that spot at some point very quickly um, if they're going to be the team that they think they are, this playoff contender. Can I just make one point? Because I want to make sure that we're clear on this. I love the play-in. I think it's the greatest thing ever. I, I honestly believe it's like of rule changes in professional sports, it's probably the most important rule change since they changed the mound in 1968. Like I think it's seriously that awesome. In the Western Conference, there's a real chance this year that the bar to make the play-in game is like 35 wins. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, unless you believe in the Sacramento Kings. I kind of do. Okay, that's that's the that's the team, right? That's the ninth team in the Western Conference, unless I've done my math wrong. I think that's the ninth team in the West. Maybe, the, maybe there's one, maybe it's Portland. But you have the Suns, Clippers, Warriors, Nuggets, right? Like, they're kind of the right. top tier. You have the Grizzlies, Wolves, and Dallas that gets you to seven. Right. The, you have the Lakers that are probably eight. The Pels are nine. Portland's 10. Sacks 11. Yeah, that's right. Like, so, yeah, I, I think Portland makes the playing game, but I also think they might win 36 games. This, I, all of these things, I think, are fair points. Portland, the other thing about Portland that, that I'm low on, so the Anthony Simons, Damian Lillard backcourt just makes no sense to me. I don't think it's going to be good enough offensively for how easy it'll be to score against. So you're going to have to go to a Gary Payton, which I think is good. But the other thing that's rough about them is Drew Eubanks is their backup center. Yeah. And I just I, I, I think that's going to be a real – I mean, if Nurkic rolls an ankle, you're talking about a, a, a lineup that's going to be extremely vulnerable. And then even against bench units, Drew Eubanks, I think – he doesn't have any strengths of a small ball big, and he doesn't have the size to be a big ball big. So I don't, I don't know what he actually brings to you. And I think that they're really thin when you start to just count him as a core piece. Well, and Adam, on that front, something I look at when I don't trust the team's player at a certain position, and one of those is backup center for the Denver Nuggets as well, is who are the other options on on staff right now? And that's why yeah. I'm really concerned about backup center for the Blazers. Wait, wait a sec. Our first contestant to muscle watch was the backup center for the Denver Nuggets. Who's that? I I, I thought that Zeke added 15 pounds of muscle I read today. Oh, was, oh my God. Yeah, I saw that report. First, yeah. It was the first muscle watch report of the year. Oh, and no way. I've, Bones Highland, it's funny. He's he's added five pounds, which I thought was Ooh. actually hilarious. Most times when you see muscle watch, it's 15, 20 pounds. But for Bones, he's so skinny. Five pounds is like you know a good percentage of his yeah. body weight. So. And I'll make it clear. I, I like Zeke. Naji. I just don't think Zeke Naji starting the year with his backup center. I think it's DeAndre, and I don't love DeAndre Jordan at this point. It's a, it's a point of contention here in Denver. Um, I don't. When you talk about who's starting there, I think Denver is going to try to not play to play DeAndre. They might have to arrive there. Zeke Naji. 
it's tough. He, I think he's a really in, interesting and useful player, but he was not good as a center. So did this new body weight, you know, did, did it, does the experience and all those things add, you know, add to him? I don't know. Um, but I think Denver's preference would be to not play DeAndre Jordan consistently. This is my favorite part about body weight. It's never discussed whether it's actually good for a player. I can't remember who it was. I remember it was a jazz player who everyone's like, oh, he gained 15 pounds. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's the worst thing he could possibly do. <laughs> like, we actually need him to be agile and quick and movement. And right. 15 pounds is a terrible idea. I don't remember who it was, but it was whoever it was. I was like, oh, this is awful. And it turned out to be awful. I, I want to go back to Adam's point because I think it's so fascinating about Simons and Lord. And it's the kind of the offense versus defense paradigm especially these two guys that are very capable. And I, and I, some of the Simons film and stats on him offensively last year were very, very impressive. Like I, when I watched a lot of his pick and roll film, I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's really developed there. But you run into these practical considerations when Simons and Lillard are playing together of as good as Simons is, how often is he actually going to have the ball in his hands? Because Damian Lillard, when he said his best, is one of the most dynamic offensive players in the league. And having both of those guys be able to shoot off ball is good, but if they're both bad defensively, it creates all these problems and it gets into the idea. I mean, one of the archetypes for this is is a, for, a former Northwest Division player, which is like when Russell Westbrook was at his heliocentric best that MVP season, you put defenders around him because the other guys weren't going to touch the ball in the first place. And so, yeah, I think Adam's right that in high pressure moments, especially when the other team has a point guard sized lead ball handler, having Gary Payton on on the floor is going to be very valuable for them. And how quickly will Chauncey Billups get to that point? And from a kind of personal dynamics perspective, yeah. is everyone okay with that? That's the biggest thing is you've got a new coach who had a shaky first year, and now you just give a bunch of money to a guy, and the right move might be to play that guy off the bench. That's just that's like the trifecta, the holy trifecta of difficult things that have to happen for you to arrive at your best lineup. Um, but again, maybe you get there. Maybe maybe there's maybe Simon starts and you try to go offense early and this or that, but it just becomes a thing that it's known Gary Payton closes in that spot. I don't know. Um, but it, to me, it seems very obvious. Simons was 10th best pick and roll guard in the NBA last year. It's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, and and he had oh, – oh, some of his opportunity was not exactly with the best surrounding talent. I, I was very impressed with what Simons did offensively last year. And there are also ways to convert – let's say Simons is that good offensively that you can either, you know, stagger those guys a little bit more than maybe Chauncey is anticipating or, you know, like one of them is going to go down with injury. And this team does not really have a lot of other supplemental playmaking in part because you expect it to be a lot of those two guys. So that'll be important to watch. Uh, I want to transition to the Minnesota Timberwolves. It I, I, I would just want to say, if sure. anyone's wondering, I am on the side of undersized, non-defensive backcourts are problematic, if anyone's wondering. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> huh. Huh. You, you, saw, well, you saw that one. Speak, uh, speak, if, anyone's, if anyone's wondering. Spe- speak, uh. Speaking of a player who just played with an undersized defensive backcourt, I think that the Minnesota Timberwolves, there's there's been a lot of great writing about them as this test case and big ball and everything else like that. But I, I think, and, and I've been critical of what Minnesota, what Tim Connolly gave up to build this team, not only in terms of the picks, but also a lot of really high quality players that I liked quite a bit. But part of what makes this 
so fascinating to me is as an experiment. And I wanted to throw a couple of things out there. I don't know. This is making me feel like I'm channeling my inner David Locke, which is Rudy. I, I don't even need to give the stats on like when Rudy Gobert is on the floor, even with very limited defensive talent around him, the Jazz have generally been very good defensively and they have been good in the ways that having Rudy Gobert on the floor will affect like, you know, not fouling a ton, generally protecting the rim very well and rebounding all of those fun things. Oh, Danny, can I please, just because only for one last time in my life I can share these numbers that have of any course. relevancy. <laughs> um, inside six feet, Rudy Gobert defended seven shots a game with players shooting at 50%, 13 percentage points below the league average. The year prior, interestingly enough, that he defended eight shots a game, so that did drop one per game. That's worth discussing. Overall, he defends 21 shots a game, with the average player shooting 41.6% against him, seven percentage points below league average, and the third best of any player in the NBA. It is worth noting that a year prior, he defended 1.5 more shots per game. For all the talk that Rudy Gobert cannot defend on the perimeter, teams' players shoot 32.6% on threes when Rudy Gobert is the defender at five a game. After the All-Star break, when everyone says Rudy slowed down, teams actually shot 39% when he was the closest defender and just 46.6% at the rim. His pick-and-roll defense last year was the sixth best of any player in the NBA. The previous three years, teams averaged 0.87, 0.86, and 0.89 points per pick-and-roll when he was the defensive center. He real good. (laughs) Okay, I can now eliminate those notes from my Jazz play-by-play notes because I don't ever need them again. Oh, that He's, just made me sad. Um, <laughs> like, crazy. Adam, go ahead. I, well, and, but I, this is such a funny thing. I, the defense is – they're both in – Minnesota is the most interesting team in the NBA to me this year. And the defense part is is obviously huge. I'm almost more interested in the offense, but sticking That's, on the defense here, Carl Anthony Towns is probably the worst. He's the op- – you could have just inverted those numbers for Carl Anthony Towns. That's how bad he is defensively. And I don't know now what he does defensively. That will be another interesting thing. Does Rudy – I mean he's been – he's used to, to – you know, picking up the slack for bad perimeter defense, but Carl Anthony Towns now is probably going to be on the perimeter guarding guys quite a bit. So I that 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 fit is just such a unique one. But I agree with you that the thing about the Timberwolves is in the Carl Anthony Towns era, it's pretty clear that they're not going to be good defensively. You give them the best defensive player in the NBA. That's a fun experiment, even if it doesn't fit naturally. It's like, hey, where what could you what do you have to lose? You were already compromisingly bad. So, Adam, you know who has a lot of experience playing center with people driving past perimeter players and coming at him full steam? Rudy Gobert. (laughs) So he'll have that. But so, yeah, you and Adam, I completely agree with you that the offensive part to me is the more fascinating thing here. And so one data point there. When Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns shared the floor last year. Cleaning the glass offensive rating, 116.7, which was the 83rd percentile of all offenses last year. And that group was not abundantly like fluky good on threes or anything like that. I mean, they did a good job in a bunch of different facets of offense. Where were they at on offensive rebounding? Do you have that in front of you? I do. Uh, they were 79th percentile. But to me, that's the most interesting aspect of all of this because a lot of times, and this is, I've, I've learned this from watching Jokic a lot, just bigs that are out on the perimeter, there's more opportunity for offensive rebounding because 
players are out of position from where they naturally are to grab rebounds. So you have a center up at the top of the key. Somebody else has to grab him. This is what I'm so interested in. Rudy Gobert has been an elite offensive player just in terms of like on off. What's your what's your offensive rating? You know, the roll to the rim gravity. I think his offensive rebounding gravity in this setup is going to be insane in a way that people are probably to me. That's the most underrated aspect of this move is if you're going to win big in a small ball league, you have to punish the teams in the ways that small ball is most vulnerable. And I think they're going to have games and and long stretches where that lineup of theirs with Twin Towers and all their good best players out there are just going to score at an insane rate, not because they're shooting well, but because in the rare chance, because whenever they miss, they're just going to have such a high offensive rebound rate. And offensive rebounding, as offense has gotten better, offensive rebounding has become more important. Well, there's especially a way to do it when you're playing four-out basketball. And the thing about offensive rebounding over the last 10 years is it's evolved from a, hey, three guys crash, two guys back, to, okay, that's too vulnerable. We need maybe only one guy crash or whatever. But this spread, this idea of Carl Anthony Towns requiring a big body on him, you can't just put you know a 6'8 player on him. He's one of the guys that breaks that type of defense if you just try to go small on him. So if you have, you have to put a big player out there, do you put a second big player and now you've compromised your own offense? I'm guessing most teams won't do that and they'll just try to run. <laughs> it's funny because they were traded for each other. Just run uh, Jared Vanderbilt on Gobert. You're not going to post up Gobert. But are smaller guys like that going to be able to just box out for 20 seconds of possession? It, it, it takes away a help defender. It takes away all of that. So I think you're going to be able to offensive rebound while still sending three and sometimes four guys back on, on transition defense, but just having that one rim wrecker that compromises the entire spacing of your defense. So I'm a little concerned about them offensively, honestly, honestly. Um, and only out of respect that they were actually pretty good offensively, right? The numbers that Danny right. just shared, they, they, you can't get much better than that. Um, they were the fifth best pick and roll team in all of the NBA last year. Like, are they getting uh, now Utah was the third best with Gobert setting the picks, but are they actually getting better than that? I'm, and that's where I'm just a little flummoxed on how this works is not is it's, it's my old Pau Gasol Kwame Brown theory, right? When, when the Lakers traded for Pau Gasol for Kwame and Kwame Brown was their prior power forward, they went from the 30th power forward to the best. Well, okay. You get a lot better. I'm not sure where they're getting better offensively. I think they can only actually get worse in this because it's going to just be a little bit more clogged. The number one pick and roll combination in all of the NBA last year of all crazy things was Patrick Beverly and Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right? And so, and that's, and that's kind of crazy, but I'm just a little concerned on how it works. And I am a little concerned on, you know, Carl Anthony Towns was probably setting 50 picks a game last year. And Rudy was pick setting probably 60 picks a game. Like guys like to be involved. Rudy, trust me, yeah. wants to be involved. So I, I'm a little concerned on how they gel offensively. And, you know, don't take this. I, I'm reluctant to talk about this in the sense that everyone I think will hear me as like, no, I, I think it was, I think Gobert is amazing. And I think it's a great trade, but Gobert set 3,200 picks last year. And Carl Anthony Towns set 2,100 picks last year. They're the second most and 10th most amount of picks of any player in the league. Both of them are outstanding at it. I just am not sure they complement each other. It's it's like the parallel but opposite of there's only one basketball is that you could only have so many screens. There's only one screener, yeah. Uh, Here's the thing, though. Rudy Gobert is replacing Jared Vanderbilt, who kind of has Rudy Gobert's skill set just smaller, right? I mean, he hustles. They're different skill set, but I'm just mean they're not threats outside of five feet from the basket. And so part of me thinks those numbers you were sharing – 
already had a don't guard this guy player on the court for a lot of those minutes in Jared Vanderbilt. So you're replacing him with somebody that does have at least different pressures that they can put on the defense in Rudy Gobert. But the thing that gives me the most intrigue by it, because it, it, it's actually, I, I say intrigue, not optimism, is that one, Chris Finch has done this twice now. He did it with Jokic and Nurkic. He was there for the year. They experimented with that. Um, and I believe even the Jokic Plumley, he was there for the Jokic Plumley season where they did some of these things. And then again, he was there for the DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis, you know, two Twin Towers lineup. So he actually has some weird experiment uh, experience with, okay, these things are going to have to be different, but it does arrive at a certain point. To your point, you can't run that many screens. Somebody is going to have to sacrifice. And that's the most intriguing thing about Minnesota. Who on this team, Rudy Gobert has been, you know, obviously has had a big impact. Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards, D'Angelo Russell, who is going to have to sacrifice the most from that group? I have a theory. I think it's going to be Anthony Edwards that not that, that you want to sacrifice, but inevitably who is going to end up being the player who most alters the oh, then that's a problem or alters some of their experience. Then that's a problem. I agree. It, it is. And he's like, not he's not playing that game. Well, and not he's only not gonna play that. there's never been a player. And that's not a comment by Anthony Edwards. There's just never been a player in the NBA in his third season that's on the verge of a breakout that takes a backseat to anything. I don't even think it means when I say change, I don't think it means lowering usage. I just think it means the game is going to be different for them now. And I think that that is also difficult for a young player who, you know, two seasons, you figure things out. You're starting to get momentum. Now, all of a sudden, it's, hey, the spacing is different. The setups are different. Everything's just a little different. Do you have to re? learn some of these things but I, i'm curious who you guys think though the general question who sacrifices the most who has to sacrifice the most out of their big four players i think it has to be cat but i'm curious to know what danny thinks i i'm frustrated with the idea that it might be carl anthony towns because i think he's the best offensive player of that group as much as i love edwards i think it is towns um but yeah i it it's going to be a really it's going to be a really hard question I, I mean it might at times I think it'll be Gobert I think that in the closing five and stuff I think that's probably the cleanest way to do it but throughout the game you're going to Chris Finch is going to need to navigate that keep him engaged but one of my big fears with the Wolves offensively is last year I, I know Locke had the great stat about Patrick Beverly just more in terms of like watching it and you know the film of the flow I thought that the my favorite not only combination with Towns, but my favorite guard creator for last year's Timberwolves was Anthony Edwards. And he's still on the team, so that's good. And I would say, but now with Patrick Beverly being gone, they're going to have to lean more heavily, at least for the time being, on D'Angelo Russell. And Russell, talented player, but you know he's going to be in a very favorable ecosystem in a lot of different ways. But he's also extremely limited defensively, and I wonder how that's going to go. Now, there is nothing that is requiring Tim Connolly to keep Russell beyond this coming season. There's nothing to, he has to keep him through this season. But he's another reason this ecosystem is going to be very complicated, even though he's a good enough shooter that if, if Edwards needs to have the ball in his hands more, Russell can work. It's just like, are you going to have a, a $30 million player who you gave up eventually right. a lottery pick, even if it was a different front office? Are they are how are they going to feel about this? But it's not only just because the equity, what they gave up to get Russell, it's also okay if it's not him. If my theory of the case is right in that you want the ball in Edwards' hands so you don't want his limited defender, well then who in the heck is gonna fill that spot? Yeah. I think we're not talking about the maybe the most important thing, and we're probably not talking about it because it's delicate and it's hard to talk about. 
but the personalities that play in here and to call Carl Anthony Towns mercurial might be generous. Um, And so I think when we're talking about who's going to adjust the most, it's cat. And I think what's crazy about this to what Danny, you're kind of bringing up is I think without the Rudy Gobert trade cat had a massive change because this was about to become Anthony Edwards team. And maybe there's a few different thoughts here. One, I think this is the potential pitfall is that Cat checks out or is not as engaged as he has at times not been. But I also think the brilliance might be that they just changed the chemistry of the team enough that they avoided the Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns battle for supremacy Mm. that happens in every single team that's ever had rising stars at the same age or similar. So basically, David, your idea is that if you jumble up the board, nobody thinks they're playing the same game anymore. Yeah. And let's not I mean, having a team, having personally watched a team that's playoff scars tore them apart, which is what I think happened to the Jazz, right? They just never overcame the bubble. We could have an incredible podcast if Conley's shot goes in and where franchises are today compared to where they were um, in the bubble. And then the Clipper loss, the Jazz never overcame it. The Timberwolves playoff loss this last year was pretty catastrophic for team chemistry, right? Like there was a lot of weird stuff going on. Carl Anthony Towns had some weird moments. They blew, what, three 20-point leads to Memphis? Mm. Like there was a lot there that as they fit, as both they and Phoenix finished their seasons as someone who's just been through what I've watched with the Jazz, I thought to myself like, wow, those are two teams that are on the verge of the exact same thing now. That's so interesting. And Minnesota's not anymore because they just added Gobert, but I do think there's still some of that lingering stuff in there. And I just, I think Cat's the most interesting player to watch. One, because he's the most, probably, no offense to Jokic, the most talented offensive player in the NBA, maybe the second most of, I didn't, you know, it's not as neat of comment to make it that way, but it's probably true. Second most talented offensive player in the league. And but I I can't figure out how he's involved in the same way. I just can't figure it out. Right. Because it's Anthony Edwards is rising up. So he's going to have the ball in his hands more. You're running more pick and roll. Edwards was good at it last year. He and D'Angelo ran about the same amount of pick and roll last year, which I mean, to your point, Danny, is like D'Angelo's got to take a lower step. But Rudy's got to be setting some of those picks. Rudy's not going to be all right just sitting in the dunker spot and playing defense on the other end. I can promise you that. So I, I think it's a really interesting mix and match. And then, Adam, your point on the fact that Finch has kind of done this before is pretty brilliant. So, But this is what's so interesting is I agree. So if we just said about the people who have to make meaningful adjustments to their to their game, I think Rudy Gobert. Bear, D'Angelo Russell, Carlton Towns, Anthony Edwards, they all probably have to make some kind of adjustments to their game. And it's just rare that we see a team that has four players of that caliber, all of whom have to make that kind of that kind of adjustment. And then I'm with you. This idea of is Towns better than Edwards? I think so right now, but I think those things do cross at some point. And that's just always a tough dynamic. It's just always a tough dynamic when you have two young players and one of them one of them has to sort of seize the the, the leadership and power and, and respect of the team. And those there's weird dynamics. But nonetheless, they're really talented. They have a really – who I think is a brilliant like strategist and coach who's going to figure some interesting things out. And I think ultimately it's going to work more than it doesn't work, even if it doesn't work in the big – like um, you know, in the biggest ways. Can I ask a big picture – I joked with you guys before that I was going to give you philosophical stuff and then sit back. So this is going to here. Here we go. This is the what I think is the there's two major trends that are going on in the NBA right now. 
And and one of them is that I believe by the end of next season, after the draft, the one of the two primary ball handlers on every team will be six nine or taller. On about half the about set about it'll be about seventeen if the draft goes as I think it'll be seventeen of thirty teams. We're we're, we're a year or two away from twenty of the teams. Six, having six their- nine seems too high for me. Um, but six seven I could go there. Like what's Shea Gilgis Alexander? I think he's like he's six, six seven. six. So, six, but six. Chet Holmgren will be their second ball handler, and he's seven one. Like, if you just start to run through, Paulo Banchero will be the first or second I, primary ball handler in Orlando. Okay, we'll call him we'll, if we call him offensive fulcrums, maybe. Yeah, like yeah, is Jokic sure. a ball handler? Or it, Bam? Handler, but, or yeah, Jokic, Bam, right? Like, okay, and and yeah. some of them really can put it on the deck now, right? Yeah. So this is Paul George. Like, this is where we're going in this league. Does that? And so, therefore, at least my thought is. You know, I, I guess I'm, my question is like, what's the impact of that pick and roll defense? I think it might force you to switch because you can't have a six one guy or six two. It might eliminate the six one guard. I think is one of the things to discuss because now if you're switching on a seven one big who's handling the ball in the pick and roll and they're inverting everything and you're switching it and now he just takes you the post and brings back the post. That's the whole theory from many years ago. Or he just overpowers you. The other thing is, does it make a secondary rim defender even more vital because your primary rim defender is always going to get pulled out the way Rudy has been over the years? Like the numbers we gave on Rudy, what I thought was super interesting is it doesn't sound like a lot that he's defending two less shots a game, but that's actually about 13%. And so that is getting to be a lot that suddenly the game is changing enough that the primary rim defender is defending two less shots a game. It matters. So where are we going with this? And what does it mean? Does it mean you actually need to go two bigs because one big is going to get pulled out and you've got to have a secondary rim defender? Does it mean you have no chance with two bigs because you're always going to have somebody who's pulled out on the floor who's going to get beat off the dribble? Like, I'm not sure where this game is going, but to me, that's the biggest trend in the game is that like what used to be the unique Kevin Durant ball handling seven footer is now going to be on probably 75% of the teams here within a year or two. I mean, if you just look at the trend, it's probably already there. There's the, 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 most of the way, like we already, if we went through the league, we could probably find one starter on on most of the teams that fits the description you're talking about. But as far as like the increase in that, I, a lot of this has to come down to the most disappointing thing about last year was, in my opinion, was the way the rule changes started off versus, or the emphasis in the rule changes started off versus how they finished. Yes. Because to me, that's the ultimate question here is, do we, if we are moving more and more away from some of the, the cheap fouls along the perimeter, then I can see your theory working. But if we're not, I just think there's going to be a, a, a place for some of these crafty small guys to draw fouls 30 feet from the basket. I'll, I'll add in something else, which is it, it's going to be a weird connection, but I think ho- I hope listeners and YouTube will get it in the end. So hearkening back to Porzingis, Kristaps Porzingis, when he was on the Knicks and the Mavericks, like there was this idea early on where it's like, oh, if you have this big who can space the four, then you can play a non-shooting player at any position and then you can survive it. So if it's a a really good defender, but he can't shoot or something like, you know, like that wing stopper or something else like that. And my response pretty quickly was, no, the answer there is that you just don't have a non-shooter. You play you play five shooters and you see how it bends. And things have gone more in that direction, especially because there are a lot more good shooters now. 
and I actually think it's a similar idea, at least for some teams, the theory of the case. If you can get your shot creation for that player and others from guys who are six foot six and taller, then as long as you have somebody who can navigate screens and do all that, and we're seeing some taller players who can do that, that's going to be, you know, like the the Grizzlies had Zaire Williams do that a fair amount last year. We're going to see more and more of those players over the next couple of years. So we talked about the bending on the offensive end. That's the bending on the defensive end. Because if you can get skinny and do that stuff, it's actually way better because you have the length to contest a little further away. And so I think that there will be teams that move away from small guards as long as they can properly defend the other teams that still have them. However, I like Adam said, I think there's still pretty clearly a place for those guys if they're good enough. So basically, I think there will be a pressure on small guys the way that there has been a pressure on tall guys the last couple of years, which is there's still a place for you in the rotation. There might even still be a place for you in the closing five, but you're going to have to bring a lot to the table. And in an ideal world, you're not taking that much off. And that might be where some of this goes once we get a few more of these real... And it's not even necessarily new players coming into the league. It's the development of players who are already there, like we've seen what Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have done over the last few years. And uh, Shea Gildas-Alexander has been invoked more than a few times in this podcast. Like those guys growing into those roles as well. Yeah, I I think there's a paper, rock, scissors quality to all of this with the league. And we kind of saw this. I think one of the more underrated aspects of last playoffs was Phoenix. If you actually go through every team they played in the playoffs over the last two years, who are the best guards, especially dribble penetration guards like pick and roll, spread pick and roll, dribble penetration guards that they went up over the last two years. And they really didn't run up against any. And then you get to Dallas and you've got Luka, who's obviously Luka. But you also just had Dinwiddie and you had Jalen Brunson and they absolutely carved Phoenix up in that way. And I think it's one of those things where teams can look less vulnerable when they just happen to match up against the thing they're not vulnerable to. And then when you do find that one thing, all of a sudden you look completely helpless. And I think that's part of what we're getting to here. Does this, you know, six, nine all across the board, does that work? Yeah, it does. But as we saw in the bubble, the Clippers ran into a team that actually could break that when you tried to guard them with Marcus Morris and they just absolutely in the nuggets and they absolutely steamrolled them. I just think there's going to be a paper, rock, scissors quality to the league until and unless they make some more of these perimeter rule changes where some of these teams are going to be designed to beat the switch everything. Some of them are going to be designed to beat the big who tries to drop. Some of them are going to be designed to beat the, the, the small ball. And it's just who you match up with, which is going to make you either shine or look terrible. Plenty more with David and Adam to come. But first, a message from betonline.ag. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first-to-market odds and lines. Find reviews and news of every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. BetOnline continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in-game betting, prots, and futures. Head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to join today and make your first sports bet. Use that CLNS50 promo code to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. And again, that is CLNS50 at BetOnline, where the game starts. The only other, because we've kind of talked about a lot of the transactions in this conversation, transaction that we haven't really talked a ton about, and it's firmly in Mr. Mattis' wheelhouse, is the trade that Denver did with the Washington Wizards. They sent away Will Barton and Monte Morris for KCP and Ish Smith. 
there are, I, I mean, we, I could honestly spend about a half an hour talking about that deal. We're not going to do that. We'll save that for his excellent work. But just what do you take away from that? You know, trading, trading two good key rotation players, especially with what Morris had to do last year with Jamal Murray out for one who is arguably a better fit in their closing five. I mean, I think there's little question that Denver – to me, the thing that's interesting about Denver this offseason is I think their best lineups got significantly better. You know, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, now that you bring back a Jamal Murray to Michael Porter, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, you lose a little bit of ball handling that, that Barton provide, a little pick-and-roll play. You don't lose any shooting. I think that's kind of right across the board, maybe even a slight upgrade in just catch-and-shoot shooting. And then you get a major upgrade in defense where Walt Barton, I don't know if it was the higher usage on offense or what, but his defense really dropped off over the last two seasons um so you get a major defensive upgrade where you needed it so to me denver's like upside play you you know their best lineups the things that you think will win playoff series to me got significantly better but when i grade the nuggets and it's funny i can't wait to hear your guys's take on it i've talked to a lot of different people when i look at the nuggets i'm so high uh, on them in large part because i think Jokic is like a Giannis, like a LeBron. I'm not saying the same caliber as a LeBron player, but just in that he gets you 90% of the way there. Like the team is good because they have him and he's just going to make whatever combination you get. And their best lineups now fit what he does and what you want to do, especially with him and Jamal so perfectly that I think it makes their, their like ceiling significantly higher. But to your point, I had Tony Jones on my show, you know, earlier this week or last week. And one of the things he said that really stuck to me was last year, I think it might've been, I'm curious if you agree with this David he, the loss of George Niang it, it, it was probably underrated just that he was a connective player everybody liked him he kind of brought everything together and I wonder Will Barton and Mont- Monte Morris in particular definitely was the, that type of guy and I'm curious to see if they're missing that piece of it not on the court per se but just a guy that like hey everybody likes Monte it, 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 do they have that guy that kind of everybody is sort of a touch point to so George Niang might be the best teammate Ever in the NBA, or like at least he's the best teammate in the NBA right now. Like I've never wow. been around anyone who changes the mood of an entire franchise as a ninth man on a roster. Wow. And last year, remember all the talk about Philadelphia and all their chemistry and how great it was and everyone attributed it to, well, no Ben Simmons around. That's why they're getting along. No, it's because they had George Niang in the building. And the other piece of the Jazz last year was that they had Derek Favors the year prior. And while he wasn't a great player, he was sacrificing enough that it kind of eliminated everybody else from complaining. And when those two left the building and you replaced them with Hassan Whiteside and Rudy Gay, that was not the vibe at all. And so then every complaint got louder. And then some of your more kind of prickly guys who maybe are fun, but they're prickly, like then they became prickly. But if Niang's around, then it became fun, if that makes sense. So there is something truly to that. And I don't know the inner workings of Monte Morris and Will Barton, but that is definitely something that happened. Tony Jones is 100 percent right that that happened. Uh, with the jazz. The one that confuses me on this whole conversation is like continuity is actually super important in this league. I know that we had a lot of fun in the off seasons about where everyone's going, but if you kind of look like, look at Boston, they pretty much were the same virtually like 80% of their minutes was the same Milwaukee, 80% of their minutes are the same. I don't have it. Like where does Denver fit on continuity? Cause about 80% of their minutes are the same as what they were three years ago. <laughs> I'm going to guess that only about 25% of their minutes are the same as what they were last year. Well, so here's the crazy stat I put out there. The last time Jamal Murray was on the court, there was only four Denver Nuggets players that were in the rotation then that are in there now. It was Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon. Everybody else, the other six guys in your main rotation, either were not playing, like Zeke Naji was on the team at that point, but he wasn't playing. He, 
he was the 11th or 12th guy or they're new to the roster. So to me, and Aaron it's Gordon funny. played what? 10 games with them. Yeah, right? and he barely played. Exactly. So really he played five. I think it was five or six games together before Jamal Murray got hurt. So it's funny how it's not really that Denver is back. Their core four is back, which is obviously by far the most important. But all the other pieces to this team are new since the last time he was on the court. So I think that's a bigger hurdle for the Nuggets this year than like when I look at the Nuggets at 50.5 and the fourth best team in the Western Conference on most of kind of everyone has them right behind the Suns, Clippers and Warriors. I 100 percent get it. But I think that might be the one piece we're underestimating. I, I I agree with that. I my only counter and the reason I feel more confident in Denver being that top four team is just I yo we saw Jokic's floor. Faku Austin Rivers is your starting backcourt, and it's yep. a forty nine win team. Yeah. So. Yep. I mean, to me, I, that, so I'm with you on all of that. I don't think Denver is going to look like the 2015 Warriors where it just clicks and all of a sudden it's like, here it is, the fully formed version. But I do think that they just have this floor that is so elevated because they have a guy that makes everything so easy. I buy that. Yeah, and as long as Jokic can play most nights, like that that game, to, I, I think of the game-to-game floor a lot of like, okay, if they're if they have a couple of guys because we're seeing this now a lot if you have a couple of guys out whether it's injuries or there's just a night off or whatever can you beat a league average team and for me with Denver if Jokic is out there I'm going to give them a good chance whether it's at home or on the road and that's when you really start racking up those wins and I mean the Jazz did it at times in a different way but it's when when you can reach that threshold where you don't need your best to beat average teams I'm not talking about the dregs like that that's something that a lot of teams can do um but if you can do that and i think denver is going to be firmly within that camp so then you're you're in that conversation i also my my inclination and there are a couple teams that could prove me wrong here is that i don't know that anybody in the west is going to run and hide with this and so if it's the closer it is it's going to be weird towards the end of the year i'm, I'm excited about that possibility uh, i want to get to the rookies can i ask one more denver question uh, of course and i it's almost ironic that i'm asking this question um And I do realize that it was against the Warriors and the team was super limited. And I do realize that it was against the Suns and they were really good the year before. The narrative on like Rudy was that he was played off the floor defensively. Is there any concern that Jokic is a million times better defensive player than he was like four or five years ago? But that those two playoff series actually are kind of have exposed an Achilles heel on Denver defensively with Jokic that he does get exposed a little bit in those settings, understanding that those two teams are great. But that is what you play in the playoffs. The the only reason I don't and look, I I think I don't think Denver's going to win a lot of series with a 100 defensive rating. Like, I just don't think that's a thing that's going to happen. The reason I push back on that for both series is Jordan Poole killed the the Nuggets in that Warrior series. And part of what we learned, remember, if if you recall, because nobody had actually seen the Warriors fully healthy until the playoffs, that was the first time and Steph was coming off the bench. A lot of it was, is this the new death lineup? Jordan Poole goes out there and just destroys the Nuggets. His three best games of the entire playoffs came in games one, two, and I think five of that series or something like that. The difference was as the series went on, you realize that Jordan Poole was a guy that actually became a mark for other teams. And it's like, hey, we can't do that because now we lost too much and you have to find the balance between offense defense. The difference was Denver had 
had to attack Jordan Poole with Austin Rivers and you know these players that couldn't do it. So they they weren't able to do that. So my point is, Denver looked really bad defensively, to your point, in both of those series. But both teams, Phoenix and Golden State, looked like juggernauts on offense until a team made them have to put out two-way lineups. And then when they did that, they looked a little bit more like a regular team, which was, hey, we have some compromises on offense, we have some compromises on defense, but the net of it works. And again, Jalen Brunson absolutely torched the Phoenix Suns, as did Spencer Dinwiddie, as did obviously Luka Doncic. Jamal Murray, his best games have come against the Phoenix Suns. You know, he's he's been very good against uh, the Golden State Warriors. So I think Denver, where they were like a 118 offense, 120 defense against the Warriors in this last year and similar numbers against Phoenix two years ago, to me, that normalizes a bit when the other teams have to adjust and not just put their offensive lineups attacking Jokic in the pick and roll every time. Good, good point. Just before every Nugget fan annihilates me on Twitter, not that I actually care. I mean, I... I do care if someone ha- and I hates me. I don't actually care if someone does it on Twitter. <laughs> um, just that that was not an unfair question. The defensive rating for the Nuggets in the last three defensive series, last three playoff series, is one twenty two, one twenty three, and one twenty two. That was a fair question, everybody. It's a real, and honestly, I don't know that that number is going to be re- is going to be significantly better. What's interesting about the Nuggets? I think their offense, though, is going to be one of those. If you look at the series, even against very good defensive teams, their offense has just been unstoppable, especially as the series has gone on. And I think you'll see something that normalizes there where they're going to be one of, if not the best offense in a playoff series. And they'll probably be hopefully only a bottom five defense in a playoff series, meaning they can be, you know, adequate. But here's the thing that's interesting about them and it's the most interesting question. What is Michael Porter to them this year? Because I'm I'm higher on Michael Porter than anyone. I mean, the injury stuff is, is you know, what it is. But he's just such an effective offensive player, even as a low usage guy. But I think, and I've said this on a couple other shows, I think that what Bruce Bruce Brown represents to me is the guy that, hey, we don't have to close with Michael Porter if it's not working out in a playoff series, which I think it's going to, I would not be surprised if it just never works out in a playoff series to have Murray, MPJ, and Jokic on the court together. But Contavious Caldwell, Pope, Bruce Brown, and Aaron Gordon, in my opinion, is a very good 2-3-4 defensive unit to put around your great 1-5 offensive players. And to me, that's what represents, hey, the healthy compromise where the peaks on offense aren't going to be quite as high, but you might not lose too much, but now all of a sudden you have three very good defenders to, that can handle all the different challenges you're going to see. To me, that's that's what makes Denver so intriguing as a playoff team. I'm buying the nylon calculus rule of 750 on Bruce Brown and not buying his 40% three-point shooting. I don't think he is either. I just don't think it matters. I, okay. I mean, it matters a little bit as in you're not going to... Look, Denver last year, the crazy numbers, I think it was a 122 point something, 0.5 offensive rating when Jokic and Aaron Gordon were on the court together Hmm. last year. And you're talking about Monte Morris, Will Bar, you know, good but not elite offensive talents around him. I just think that the floor for Denver, when you put even Austin Rivers and Faku Campazo around him, like Yoke just finds a way to make it a 118 offensive rating. And I think Bruce Brown, Aaron Gordon, they do things on offense. They don't shoot. But I just think it's going to still be a very good offensive group. I I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Let's go let's go quickly into the rookies. This is actually partially because the Thunder exist. This is a and I mean the Jazz have some fun guys now too. A a pretty interesting rookie group. Uh, the general question I have, I, the way I've done in the outline for years, is the rookie you're most excited to see. But I'll open the floor beyond that of just like which players overall like that are in this class that in, interest you or that you're you're looking forward to preseason regular season. Could start with David. 
Well, I mean, Chet Holmgren's um, the obvious choice here. His summer league yeah. was amazing. I didn't love his gait. I will, and maybe I'm wrong on that. Like in that he, you know, we're all worried about him at seven feet, 195 pounds. About six, seven, eight years ago, I did a bunch of research on weight and found out that if you are over 27, if you're 610 and over 270 and under 220, it's super hard to play in this league. Some of that might have changed, but I'm not sure it totally has. So I've got some real, same reason I had real concerns on Zion Williamson. Um, I have some real concerns on Chet Holmgren. I just, I, I, I think sometimes when you're a unicorn, there's a reason um, and it's not good. So that's a, but he's amazing and he is the future player. And that obviously the unknown part about Sharp in Portland is, Really interesting. Um, I could sell you on Walker Kessler and some guys like that, but I'm not sure that would be the most truthful thing on my end. I don't really. You know. I, re- I, mean, I, I, I was very I impressed Walker with Walker. I think Walker Kessler is super interesting. That block rate in college is the greatest block rate ever in the history of collegiate basketball. And I, does that translate to the NBA is a pretty interesting concept. And do you get it? Did the Jazz just go get Robert Williams with the 22nd pick the way Danny Ainge did it before? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I, I'm. He's on my list. Part of this is there's not that many exciting rookies to me. I mean, Chet Holgrove, obviously, extremely interesting. Jalen Williams, another player I really love, uh, so I'm very interested in him. But Walker Kessler was third on my list here. In part, I, I mean, who? I don't know what Utah's going to do over the next couple months. Like right now, their their team is sort of still good enough to to like win games, and then he just becomes this bit player that just does his job. But if they do end up making a Donovan trade and and just kind of going full in on 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 a rebuild or 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 an adjustment. Then Walker Kessler, I am they will be bad, but I am kind of excited to see like does he get just a ton of minutes and and featured a little bit more, even defensively featured. I, I'm I there's a chance where Walker Kessler is actually a very interesting player by February. By the way, what is so the Jazz have the number one offense in all the NBA last year, and this year's roster is Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Malik Beasley instead of um, Royce O'Neal, Boyan Bogdanovich, and then this hybrid center that is Walker Kessler, Adoka Azabuke, Jared Vanderbilt, mm. which is a mm. weird combination, mm-hmm. but it does a bunch of different things. Probably, you know, I, I, I'm not, I can't decide whether I think they're 26th or 27th defensively. That was said tongue in cheek, but maybe truthfully. Um, but what do we think they are offensively? Compelling. I think to to say the least. I mean, part of it for the Jazz, it's been for me like who is actually going to be on this Jazz team? Who's gonna yeah, who's gonna play and all that? But I think the best the best version of them offensively could be pretty dynamic. I mean, not only is it a lot of strong offensive players, but it's the lack of guys that you can really help off of, which is always a, a key a key thing. So it's okay if if Donovan Mitchell or Conley or Bogdanovich gets downhill, how many people are going to be there to stop him? And the answer is not a whole heck of a lot. And that's intriguing to be to be sure um david mentioned it briefly but for me my number hold, one hold up hold up hold up i have to interject here because i get to flip this on david for the first time in a couple of years yes. and i'm very excited to do it uh i think that they might be meaningfully worse offensively because they lost their best offensive player i mean i i have believe in rudy's rim verticality and the fact that he bends every defense and the fact that there's only one pick I mean setter this, that's by the, in way. the top. I mean, I believe in, yeah. I mean, there's, if you look at the top 20 pick and roll combinations in the NBA, there's only one offensive player that's in two of them. And there's only one or one Paul Handler's in two of them. And there's only one pick setter that's in two of them. The offensive players, Luka Doncic and the pick setters, Rudy Gobert. So I, I'm with you on that. I think it's, it'll be interesting of whether or not, you know, do you, are you able to spread the floor in 
some way that lets Donovan do some things he hasn't done before. You know, obviously, is this going to be the roster is a huge question mark. Um, but that's, you know, Malik Beasley is a pretty significant offensive upgrade from Royce O'Neal. You still have Jordan Clarkson. Um, I think they could be really hard to guard if this is their roster. Mm. But I, you know, I'm not like, I don't think Jared Vanderbilt can play pick and roll in a manner that attacks the rim vertically and makes you drop the big the same way. Um, I don't know about Walker Klesler. I do think Adoka Azabuke, who he just, I don't know if he can handle defensively and I don't know if he can rebound at all or if he can stay healthy. But offensively, he actually rolls to the rim. You got to deal with it because he does get way up above the 10 and make pretty incredible, you know, dunking offensive plays, which is the realm of his offensive game. Um, but I, I'm not trying to sell it. I just think it's an interesting, like I keep looking at this team and everyone says the Jazz, understandably, are going to be very different. But I, I do kind of wonder like, wait, this was the best offensive team in the league. And where do we think, and Adam, you're bringing it up, Rudy Gobert's offensive impact is on that. Yeah, I, it, I, it is funny though to look at the roster because it's like, oh, they blew it up. But they didn't really blow it up. Mike no. Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Boyan Bogdanovich, those are like playoff caliber players, you know, that every team would want um and then jared vanderbilt walker kessler very strange rudy gay you know malik beasley has jordan clarkson you still patrick beverly like they run let's see what is that seven deep of good players like players that would be in most playoff rotations and then you have wild cards in vanderbilt kessler as a bouquet um <laughs> so it's just very unbalanced it's very strange but as you mentioned the story for, with them is likely other changes some at some point i think yeah um for, one for guy, though, wait i'm gonna mention something for selfish yeah. reasons i really hope the jazz start the season with a similar roster to now because you kind of get that Garfield minus Garfield test of it's like, Mm. well, they have a lot of it together, but they don't have Gobert offensively defensively how much of an impact now if it's if it's only for like a month or two then your small sample size theater and all of those sorts of problems but i would love for selfish reasons as an analyst i would love to see it i'm a little upset here for a second because i've got two guys that are about to go to europe to watch basketball and neither of you are excited about Foncecchio. like come on i, <laughs> I haven't I mean, seen him yet i i will probably be excited at that point um Adam, you were going to go somewhere, and then I have somewhere, too. Uh, where was I? Oh, we were just talking about rookies, and one guy that I think is not on people's radar that might be by the end of the year is Christian Brown. Mm-hmm. Denver has a, a their best lineups right now on the off of the second unit feature Bones Highland, Bruce Brown, probably Jeff Green and Zeke Nagy. So does that mean you bring in a center and you move everybody up a spot? Does that mean you bring in a guard? Christian Brown, I think, has a real chance to be a like a, a meaningful rotation piece for the Nuggets um throughout the season it's not a guarantee he might just not break into that he not re- might not reach that level but presumably a guy that can shoot the three six seven who can guard and who's just a very low mistake player he's one of the more ready nba ready players at least that's how he was touted one of the more nba ready players so he fits both what the nuggets need um and has sort of a vacancy at that spot so he might end up being one of those guys that makes an impact We've talked a lot about, uh, or we've talked a fair amount about my, so my number three on this is Jalen Williams, who I loved in Summer League. I hadn't seen any of him at Santa Clara and just like, oh, I think he can play. And also bring something. I love him so much. Bring something that the Oklahoma City Thunder didn't really have as a two guard who can kind of be a connector, who can do a lot of different things well. Doesn't have to be ball dominant, but can be if you want that. Two is Chet. I mean, he's he's amazing. But my number one, mostly because I've seen him play so little, but I've liked what I've seen is Shaden Sharp. And Sharp, I didn't, I'm not as effusive as, as Nate Duncan about him, who had, Nate had him number one on his board, which was, which is fascinating. But Sharp, the idea of him, of somebody who has a, a really projectable jump shot, who has good positional size, and who has some defensive tools, like, I don't think it's going to be this year because, 
a they have players who have who have a lot of prior experience and success, but there is an idea that Sharp fits in really well with the Blazers' present and future if he can get his level up, and I think he could be a really good player. And so, like the the way that the tension that Adam talked about earlier in the podcast between Lillard and Simons could resolve not this year, probably not next year, but maybe two years down the line, is Sharp is good enough that you can move Simons to a team that needs what he does, and then you can move you can move Sharp into that spot in the rotation. I, I don't know enough about him, honestly, to comment, so I don't I don't have a ton of perspective on him. Totally fair. Did uh, Nate Duncan like Jalen Brown or not? Loved him. Okay. Maybe he should. Maybe he knows everything. Then <laughs> I remember the podcast. I was giving Nate credit. I just want to give Nate a shout out if he's listening an hour and twenty minutes into this. I mean, with you with you two on, he probably will. Um, <laughs> me, eh, either way. Uh, let, let's get a little bit. We'll do, we'll do this probably quick. We don't need a ton here. Um, we'll start with Adam. We'll get into the season preview part of this. You can use whatever criteria you want. I usually say regular season record is a good way to do it, but you can do whatever makes you happy. Rank these teams one to five. And again, you can use whatever criteria if you want to say how they are now, how you project over the season, all that type of stuff. So I'll start because I have two mechanisms by which I judge teams to start. There we go. So the first thing I ask about every single team in the NBA is do they have 240 minutes of viable time on their roster? In other words, that's that's 48 times five. In other words, do you have a, a bona fide NBA player for every minute you play? That's the first qualification. So Oklahoma City's a no. I actually think Portland's a no. We don't know yet on Keon Johnson. We don't know yet really on Nasir Little. We don't really know yet on Greg Brown. We don't – Drew Eubank. I, I think they're a pretty dramatic no. Um, Denver, I think Utah's probably a no the, to kind of our – because of the center position, but it's actually kind of interesting to what we just talked about, that there's actually a surprising amount of players on that roster, but they're they're a no. So I think that's really interesting that three teams in this league don't actually have 240 – in this 240 minutes. So then you get into Denver and you get into Minnesota. And I'm not even sure I go yes on Denver entirely, right? We just talked about backup center. I'm not entirely sure about backup power forward. They're a little, they're probably a little short of 240 minutes. And then you get to Minnesota and they actually might be the closest to actually having 240 with the addition of Kyle Anderson that we haven't talked about, which is pretty good addition for them. They have 240, I think NBA minutes. So that's the first one. Then the second thing I look at is do either of the teams have a capability of being top five offensively or defensively, right? Because as to your point earlier, Adam, the minute Jokic is on the floor and you're top five offensively or top five defensively, you're into a pretty unique category. And I do think both Denver and Minnesota have a chance for that. So um, I actually am going to go Minnesota one, Denver two. As the rosters are constructed right now, I actually might go Utah ahead of Portland. I don't think that'll last. So I would go Portland three, Utah four, Oklahoma City five. But the other one I would say is that if Utah does unload this thing, they don't have any pieces the way that Oklahoma City has Shea Gilgus, Alexander, Chet Holmgren, and and Josh Giddy. And so um, they actually could be five really quickly. I, I agree with everything there. I mean, I obviously have the Nuggets ahead of the Wolves, um, but I wouldn't be surprised in the regular season if it was the other way, just because Denver's such a mystery. I mean, is Michael Porter going to be healthy for a whole season? The weird thing about Michael Porter is he's been in the season or in, in the league for four years, and two of those he missed entirely, and two of those he played pretty much entirely. So there's this idea of like he's only going to play 30 or 40 games. He's kind of only been completely healthy or not at all healthy and i don't know what to make of that 
Um, so Denver's a wild card, but I still think that their ceiling is higher. And when we talk about the 240 minutes, I don't think people realize how bad Denver's bench was for the first three months of the season last year. I think there was a point when Denver was like a 500 team, when Jokic was a positive in like 40 of 45 games and Denver somehow was 500. That's how bad the bench was. And Jokic is playing 34, 35 minutes a night. So I, this year, the bench just being an average one, which I, I think they probably will be. Uh, I think they'll be better. Wolves, I think they'll probably have a hot start. Teams probably, because of all the dynamics of just how many people have to change, it, I, I think it's going to be an up and down year for them. I have Blazers comfortably third here. I thought it was interesting that you had Utah there, but I guess we're all... Maybe I'm wrong on this. We're all just kind of assuming Utah's different. And then the Thunder are the or is different at some point in the season. They make a trade, mix it up. The Thunder are the interesting one to me. You were talking, I don't know if we're gonna do breakout players, but I just think Shea Gildas Alexander is such a good player. And and if you look at the numbers, it's so hidden by the fact that they would always bench him whenever he was too good. And so I just think that this is that I don't think the Thunder are good, but I do think that Shea Gildas Alexander is very good and they have enough like interesting players that that um they'll they'll be better than than a straight-up tanking team. I think the most important number in, on the on that, by the way, is Josh Giddy's 26%. We haven't talked about it, but I just want to throw it out there. I had it written down. Josh Giddy's 26% three-point shooter is is horrific. Yep. Like it's it's problematic. It's super problematic. Nobody wants to talk about it. Everyone wants to talk about how great he's going to be. You know, I mean, I think there was something crazy that um, basketball reference like has him projected close to like a triple double um, in 36 minutes next year. Like they have, everyone loves him. And I think he, there's a lot to love, but 26% three point shooting for your primary ball handler is, is career threatening. Well, and they also have a ball handler who is better than Giddy and Shea Gildas Alexander. So how is that dynamic going to work? And Giddy, there's a lot, there's a lot to love there, but how does his game work when he he doesn't have the ball in his hands all the time? And is he good enough to take it out of Shea's hands, which I think, as of this point, if your goal is to win basketball games, is a no. And also, a, kind of a, a small thing to keep an eye on with Oklahoma City, I think Mark Dagnalt is a very good coach. And OKC last year, quietly, they were 19th in defense, despite having, I would say, pretty bad defensive talent and not having opponent shooting luck. So I don't know that Chet Holmgren is going to be the stone like the 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 thing that clarifies all of this i would love for that to be the case they've just done a good job there and they've been they've been good offensively when shay's been on the floor i mean they've at least they've been more competitive relative to their talent level so and also like it it gets hard at this point of it to just be bad again and so maybe it's there the you know they they have a little bit of impatience i brought this up last a little bit a couple days ago with detroit keeping jeremy grant last year where it's like you want to be bad, but you don't necessarily want to be like truly, truly awful. I wonder how Sam Presti's going to handle that. If, if they're tanking, if they're going for bad again this year, the league has got to, they've got to step in, in my opinion. Shea is too good of a player. He's in his fifth season. It, I understand. I, I hate this idea of people of multi-year tanks. I just, I, to me, it's it's not like that genius. It's not the way it was supposed to be designed. And you have a player averaging 24 and a half points per game right now, who by the, on efficiency, who by the way is really good at a lot of different things. If you have another ye- season where you're like, hey, but there's one more draft where we could really make, hey, I just, I, we, you can't do it. There, there, there's a limit on how many years you can tank and the Thunder have already passed that limit. If they do it another year, I, I'll, I'll pull my hair out. Let me, let me ask you a question because this is pretty relevant in Utah right now, if this is where we're heading. Has it worked? I know we, did, we did this last year. I don't know if you remember. We had this exact conversation. But then the Thunder up and got the second pick and, and then added Jalen Williams as well. Right. So, I mean, But I'm super curious. 
I've been researching this obviously an awful lot if the Jazz are really going to do this. The signature to me in this league is that young players that rise up together end up having personality conflicts. Sometimes they argue who has a bobblehead doll first. I'm not kidding. That happened in a franchise where one of the players was so upset that the other player's bobblehead doll night was first. This is sounds... That's like fun because it's dramatic, but it's actually no different than any sales staff in the country where they argue who has the lit client list, right? It's no different than anything else in society where two people are rising up together and one of them wants the fame. Like it just is the way it works. They're rising like five guys up at some time. Houston's trying the same thing. Like I think Detroit's super interesting because I think Detroit's about to pivot out of this and now go sign free agents. And so then they try to add veterans to their two or three young players and Cade Cunningham and Ivy and and we'll and we'll see who, you know, whether it's Sadiq Bay or who it is. But I'm trying to research this and I guess you can say Philadelphia is the answer, but I have a hard time with and that didn't work, right? Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid stopped getting along. Like this is what happens in this league is that young players have a hard time with wanting their own personal value established before the well-being of the team, understandably so, and it leads to chemistry problems. And so I think it's going to be super interesting to watch how these players all interact in Oklahoma City and how it works and whether it does or not. And that's, you know, and that's a model for other teams on this kind of multi-year tank is you end up with a tremendous amount of players at the exact same age, at the exact same career point. And I'm not sure that's a positive thing. The the thing, because I'm with you on this, by the way, uh, the idea of like, okay, in, in four years, it's going to be Shea and it's going to be Chet and it's going to be Giddy and it's going to be Victor W. And it's gonna, like all those guys. I think that we're 15 years into this now. If you talk about Oklahoma City as the first team that had like three straight great drafts, then obviously you have the 76ers. And I do think there's lessons to be learned here. And and I wonder if, if Oklahoma City uses those lessons. The lessons would likely be to start cashing these things in in short order. And oh, by the way, there are some very high profile disgruntled players who might be available here in the next six months that, you know, these top picks and some of these young players would be very enticing. But but to me, that that would be the thing, because I'm with you. I don't think you just go slow every draft. They have enough pieces right now, though, that if they were to have one more bad year and have a top three pick in the next draft on top of all their other picks and young players, could you consolidate that for two all-stars to go alongside Shea Gilgis-Alexander? I think the answer is yes. And by the way, I, I just think it's so silly that this is a successful way of building a team. It, it does. Um, it does. Can I, throw, can, can I throw one like big nugget out at the hour and a half mark and like that people can, you know, debate after we're done? Um, this is why I actually think Orlando should trade for Donovan Mitchell. Mm. There's no point in the slow play of this over the next three years. Is that your, is that what you mean? I mean, like they've done it for long enough. They have Ben Chero, who's a really interesting player. They would probably have to give up Jalen Suggs. And yeah. some picks. I, I think they wait. I think they wait one more year. And you accelerate it, and you probably become a playoff team pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're willing to do it, I I think for for Orlando, like the the delineation point for me is: do you have a player who you think has a credible chance to be the best guy in high level playoff series? And you're not going to know okay. because your team's going to be far out, and players' peaks are later than their early twenties. But that's where, he, and, and the funny thing is, I don't say like if you have Luka Doncic, you push the accelerator right away. You actually be a little bit patient there because it's the last time you're ever going to get a chance to build up your young core. And we've seen that now with the Mavericks. 
And but you if you don't have that player, you do it. But then there is that juncture of like, well, we've been here long enough. And I think that OKC could definitely be there. I would say for both of those, maybe you wait, maybe you try to do this year and then that's the end. And then you push out, which is going to be weird because if that ends up being the case for Orlando and Oracle with Oklahoma City, and it looks like it's going to be the case for Detroit and Houston, someone's going to have to fall into their place. And I have no idea who it's going to be. Um, We'll do this quickly. Um, How many teams from this division make the eight teams that are in the best of seven? Two. Two. I agree with that. And then um, we can close this out with breakout players. And I don't define that as who's going to be a star, though there are some who could be there. But it's players that we will talk about meaningfully differently a year from now than we are at this moment. I'll, I'll start with this one. I had I identified four players. Um, the first I already mentioned, Shea Gillis. Like four? Four? That means you're going to get my guy in here, and I'm going to be really pissed. <laughs> Jaden McDaniels is on my list. Is he your guy? That's nope, my only surprise one. We're good, we're good there. Um, and then these two are Nuggets. Michael Porter Jr., who I just, again, I, I think it's un, under-discussed how good he is of an offensive player, and he has weaknesses that in a playoff series. Like, we separate regular season and playoffs. This can be a little bit of a different conversation. Conversation, but when he's on the court in the regular season, he shoots 60% on really difficult shot making, 40, 42 plus percent from three. And I've seen enough of it to feel that those numbers might regress, but I don't think they regress a lot. He's just such a talented offensive player. And if, if he's here, I think that if he plays 50 games, 55 games, I think that the numbers he puts up are pretty special and pretty interesting. And then the other nugget, of course, is Bones Highland, who had a great, if you look at the numbers as the season went on, like month by month by for Bones, he just became such an interesting offensive player. He's a great one-on-one scorer. I think he led the NBA in three-point percentage on deep threes last year, which is kind of his calling card. He's like a very comfortable deep three um, shot taker. And then, but the thing that makes him interesting is he compared to players like Jamal Crawford or something like that. These these one-on-one scores, he's got such a good feel for the game. He's a really good passer and just makes high-level reads. And I I think he's a guy that month by month started to break out. And the numbers he put up over the last three months last year, a, a three-month sample size, were really eye-opening if you just go back and look at them. Okay, so I'm going to agree on Bones Highland. I'm interested to hear. Danny's always very good at this. So, Danny, you better have some because I want to hear what you have to say. Um, I had Bones Highland, but I actually had Bones Highland for a little bit of maybe less optimistic reason than you did. Um, I remember there was a little span in there during COVID where they made him play point guard and it didn't go well. It wasn't really fair. And I remember the kind of conversation that like. Oh, I think he's a point guard. Okay, so I think he has to be. And so I think he actually has to be the backup point guard on this roster, too. I think Um, that's the plan. But I I actually love him as a point guard. Okay, so that's where to me he's a breakout player because I I think that's what he has to be. And so at six, three, and I'm curious to see how he does it. So that, so um, that we're on the same page on that. I think you have, I think the six, one guard is becoming a very difficult thing in this league. Um, My breakout player that I had that I was scared you were going to take was Trey Mann. Ooh, Uh, that's a a good one though. And I don't really know, like I'm, first of all, he's was only 20 last year. His second half of the season on a team that wasn't winning any games and he was getting a lot of time was pretty good. Actually, like his efficiency was decent and there were some things to like about him. Um, you know, I, you wish he went to the line a little bit more, a bunch of little things, but he, he's, but the other one that's so interesting is to the size thing. And I'm just completely into positional size, but, um, is the idea that he's a six, three shooting guard, which same thing on bones Highland, I think is problematic unless your point guard is a six, six, 
Shea Gilgis Alexander and or a six eight Josh Kitty, and then you can probably get away with a six three point shooting guard, which is makes him unique to Oklahoma City. But then you know where else does he fit? So I'm I'm curious about him in that sense. Um, I just you know positional size to me was the two stories of the playoffs were positional size and the ability to drive the basketball as the two skills that you just have to have at almost every position. And um, so I'm, when I see these six, three shooting guards, I get very nervous for them. I like that. Um, it's, it's definitely an interesting choice. Um, I'm going to start out with one that is so obvious. I thought about not considering him, but that's Anthony Edwards. I think this, this could be, sure. we talked about the sacrifice, but this could be the, it's like, Oh damn, like this, he's the guy, the idea that he could be the best player, on the Wolves potentially oh, and even more like I mean I talked about this a little bit last year that he I think Edwards determines their ceiling more than Towns or Gobert just like if he I, can I, get I, there then then they're a fundamentally different team my number two and I don't think I've done this in a long time is actually a rookie and that's Jalen Williams I think that mm. he you know you brought up Trey Mann and I think Mann which is one a, <laughs> the good one the good one um Santa Clara Jalen Williams and I, I think that he he does a lot of the connector stuff that Oklahoma City sorely needs, and they that he can work alongside a lot of their other young players. And I think one connection in particular to watch is Williams' synergy with both Shea Gilgis Alexander and Chet Holmgren. Like when I saw some of some of Holmgren and Williams in summer league, I thought you add in Shea and you might really have something going here. And that gets into the idea. Like I'm not the biggest Josh Giddy fan in the world of like, they might be able to make this work even if he doesn't hit also Chip Anglin. Hopefully he can help some of these guys shoot. That would be another, I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow, but if that can be a part of this would be very exciting. For for Denver, I, I do on, like the- Real quick, I just want to say one thing on Jalen Williams. The only reason I, I wouldn't have him on my list, because I, I really like him and I'm interested by him. Another question you add on here was like weird moves or something, and keeping Lou Dort the way that they did. I, there's just so many players in that one, two, three spot. So many Oklahoma cooks. City. I think yeah, Dort's, so like Dort's going to play a lot of four for them. Well, unless they're going to play Chet at the four, which they will a lot. Such a weird team. Such a weird a team. A player I should probably mention in here, by the way, and and I'm not particularly optimistic, but Jared Butler is going to have every chance mm-hmm. in the world. To- Butler's oh, on my man, list. That's a great step pick. Forward. That's a great pick. But, but, I love Jared Butler. I have I have yeah, two I, I have two Jasmine on my list. Butler is one, and Walker Kessler is the other. I haven't seen enough of Kessler to be definitive on this, but. I was watching Jabari Smith's film, and I'm just—I just kept on seeing Walker Kessler do good things. It's like, oh, okay, like because so there's a, a specific sect of player that I've been higher on than the average, and it's these like league average or slightly better than that starting centers who fall into the 20s. So like I was on the like take Jared Allen at 13 type of range, and I didn't fully scout Kessler the way that I scouted some of those other guys. I think he could be one of those players where it's just like well, we've gone too far in this idea. You can't play drop coverage anymore. Right. Exactly. It's still mathematically the right defense to play. We didn't get into this, but the second big philosophical thing that's happened in this league that I find utterly fascinating is that to make the playoffs, you have to deny the rim defensively to make the playoffs. Here are the top teams last year that didn't allow teams to shoot at the rim. Golden State, Boston, Utah, Phoenix, then Milwaukee. Those are the top five teams that denied the rim. There, Two years ago, there was one team that was below allowing 30% of shots at the rim. Last year, there were seven. 
Okay, mm-hmm. it's like the league has gone to completely denying the rim. And if you're going to make the playoffs, you have to deny the rim. And this is where Minnesota was 20th in the league last year. And that's, you know, probably what changes them. And it's where um, Chicago was 30th. So anybody who gets excited about Chicago, I think, has some issues. The flip side is the teams that make the playoffs don't shoot at the rim. Be- mm. They don't have and to. So the teams that shot the least shots at the rim last year were Phoenix, Dallas, Clippers, Miami, Toronto, Golden State, Utah, Brooklyn, Boston, Milwaukee, Atlanta. That's the top 10 teams that didn't shoot at the rim last year. So what happens is to make the playoffs, you have to play one style, but you've got to flip it to suddenly be able to play a different style because the teams that can combat that are the teams that make the playoffs. And so drop coverage is still relevant for 24 to 30 minutes a night, if not more in the regular season. It is problematic in the offseason, in the postseason season because those teams are good enough at making those other shots. And so Walker Kessler probably has a real role in this league for a lot of the time. And then whether if he can't get out on the floor, then he probably is going to struggle in the playoffs. It's it's a little bit where some of the Rudy talk has some validity to it, though. Rudy's better defending on the floor than people realize. Right. My last breakout player, I'm going to need a ruling from Mr. Locke. Am I allowed to pick Quentin Grimes as a breakout player in the Northwest Division, considering he is not (laughs) currently in the Northwest Division? That's good. I like it. It's good. We should have we should have done more of that. It's uh, a... you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the radio voice of the team, and I have no idea. Like, I'm yeah. completely – I think they, they had to do something. The fabric of the team broke. Um, and I think what they got for Rudy Gobert is pretty tremendous. Well, um, D- it, David, can I make a quick point quick, and then you, yeah. can, you can go this. With what Danny Ainge received for Rudy Gobert – I thought that was a strong enough return that even if the fabric wasn't broken, you have to seriously consider, if not take that trade. It's so much, not only in terms of the picks, but in terms of the quality players that they could either keep or convert into other assets, that that's what made it so perfect for the Jazz is, yeah, Gobert is an amazing player, and it's going to be hard for Jazz fans to deal with a team that is going to be less dynamic on defense, and we'll see on offense. We talked about that a lot. But it it wasn't a, we had to make a move, so we grinned and bared it and did this. This was, like, the, what they got for Gobert made that a pretty, like, Danny Ainge negotiated himself into an easy call. And I'm going to give Tim Conley a lot of credit for it. And this is probably unfair to Dennis Lindsay and Justin Zanuck, but it's something that's like I can explain and I, I is it at least relates to me. The Jazz made the call to go get Mike Conley because he was the available player. Had they given up one or two more draft picks, and they gave up two in Grayson Allen, so in a sense three for that, could have they gotten Drew Holiday, who became available 14 months later. So clearly Drew Holiday was not available at that moment in time. But could have they actually been so aggressive that they forced the issue and made Mm. Drew Holiday available with one or two more first round draft picks? And if they had done that, where are the Utah Jazz today? Great question. And so for all the criticism that Conley's getting, I don't buy, I, I think it was a deal that you have to make, but I also think this is where you have to go you have to go. Like if you've got the guy out there that you think changes who you are as a franchise 
it costs you an extra draft pick, go do it. It's a little bit, you know, where some of this Nick stuff is, if they really believe in Donovan Mitchell, like what, like go, go get it. Cause if you end up with one thing short, Milwaukee went and got Drew Holiday, Phoenix got Chris Paul and those worked. Mike Conley worked to the number one record and to the number one offense. It didn't not work, but, and maybe Drew Holiday wouldn't have worked any better. So it's a faulty analogy. It's just worth a discussion. Yeah. And, and that's a part of why, you know, the bet that Tim Connolly made is a part of why Minnesota is going to be my number one team to watch at the start of the year. They're probably going to be my number one team to watch in the middle of the year. And then the end of the year, it'll depend on, on where everything goes, because th- I think their I think their upside is kind of underappreciatedly high, especially as a regular season team. But also the questions about fit, about personality, like I we talked about where they fit. You know, I think Denver is going to be a better team overall in terms of record this year. But the way this the decision will reverberate, but also just what kind of basketball we see with this these talents and Chris Finch at the helm, it's going to be so much fun. Well, I guess I'll end it on a little bit of a monologue. Thank you guys so much for coming on. <laughs> hey, this was great fun. It always is, guys. And it fires me up for the season. I, the schedule's usually like my moment. This has become my new moment of where I get my brain thinking NBA again. So I appreciate you guys. And Danny, Likewise, I actually, I always love as a, uh, let me add this as a play-by-play announcer in the league. I appreciate the whole series. The only thing I don't like about this is that when I get to do the Midwest, divi- get to the Midwest division, I'm always like, well, wait a sec. I did that show. I need to listen to that show. So I need mm-hmm. you to do another one without me so that I can listen to all of them and be prepped for the season the way you with these. <laughs> Thanks again to David Locke and Adam Morris for coming on. You can listen to David Locke on both the Locked On Podcast Network and, of course, Utah Jazz Radio. And so Locked On Jazz, Utah Jazz Radio calls. I love actually love listening to David. I have, actually, I don't know if I've ever told him this. I really do enjoy listening to his calls when I have a chance. I actually listen to a fair amount of games on the radio when I'm walking, moving around, just to kind of keep, keep touch with stuff, like if I'm walking to Chase Center or something like that. You can also follow David on Twitter at DLock09, D-L-O-C-K-E, the number zero, the number nine. I guess zero wasn't technically a number, but it's a zero. And then the great Adamaris of DNVR and Locked on Nuggets. And his Twitter handle is Adam underscore Maris. That's A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. Truly love having those two gentlemen on the podcast. And we've done this for years. And this year I didn't screw up the audio the first time, which was a problem last time we did this. And they were both champs about that then. And I got things right this time, which is thrilling for me personally. Not a huge surprise that I wanted to get this one out really quickly. We recorded this earlier in the day on Tuesday, the day it is being released, because things could change, most notably Donovan Mitchell. And one good thing for you listeners is that a lot of these division podcasts are already recorded. I'm going to be traveling for a lot of the month of September and late August, so I'm getting them recorded. That will lead to some of them being less topical, potentially if deals happen, but not this one. So there's a lot of stuff here. That's why it's good to listen quickly. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you want to go. We should be there. If we're not there, let me know, and people who are smarter than I am will look into it. You can also help other people find the show, leaving a rating, leaving a review in that podcast player, or just telling people word of mouth, social media, however, really helps people find the show. And while we've been on for a long time, that does really help. 
But the most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. And for us in this episode, that is Bet Online. You can again use that CLNS50 promo code, which gives you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and tells them that you came from us, which means that they will hopefully continue to advertise on this fair podcast. You can also support my other work. Nate Duncan and I are still going strong with Dunked on Prime, though I will be on it less. Nate does the 30 team breakdowns and those are with subject matter experts on those franchises so i will not be on those but we just put out a ton of stuff including our off-season grades for 22 our regrades for 21 which was a great process and so many other things and nate and i are going to continue doing spotify live almost every week during the off-season we're going to have a couple where one or both of us are going to be unavailable and so then we're not going to do it but the plan is we're going to do it and i'll probably be as close to tuesdays at three pacific six eastern as we can make it happen. And I think we'll do that, but we'll always, of course, let you know if the timing is different than standard. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I have a couple things that I'm working on now. I've been working on hammering out these podcasts, but that'll be my kind of my new project on some of my flights. And also when I have some downtime, have some ideas and some some cool things that I'm, I'm working on mentally. And of course, you can check out Real GM Radio. That's why you subscribe. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I don't promise to reply, though I will I, I try to do well on that. It's just not it's not my greatest thing, but that's you know it's feedback and all that. But that is enough rambling for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.